0: Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery, Notes from the Guards Museum. My name is Andrew Wallace and I am the Director of the Museum. Following the wonderful interview with the Garrison Sartre Major in last week's episode, this week we will be resuming the virtual tour and looking at the Great War. I'm delighted to say that last week's episode was the most downloaded episode since I started the podcast, and I'm particularly grateful to the Garrison Sergeant Major, who I suspect was responsible for most of those downloads himself. I'm sure you'll want to join with me in saying a huge well done to those members of the 1st Battalion Welsh Guards and to the Composite Foot Guards Bands who participated in the annual birthday tribute to Her Majesty last Saturday. Through their superb performance, they helped a locked-down nation channel their love for our Sovereign Lady and to send her warmest birthday wishes on the occasion of her official birthday. Judging by the broad smile on her face, she thoroughly enjoyed her troop light ceremony. And so we turned to the war to end all wars, or so they thought at the time. In the fragile world in which we live, I think it's worth pausing and examining how Britain ended up in the Great War. It's a somewhat convoluted path and it was based on a series of diplomatic treaties which dictated a string of responses which had unavoidable consequences. The treaties I speak of are the Treaty of London in 1839 that linked Britain and Belgium together, the Dual Alliance in 1879 that tied Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire together, the Dual Entente of 1892 which tied Russia and France together, and the Triple Entente in 1907 that tied Russia, France, and Britain together. So you had, in effect, Russia, France, and Britain versus Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And remember, any declaration of war on Britain was automatically binding on the entire British Empire. The sequence of events that led up to the Great War starting were as follows. On the 28th of June 1914, a lone wolf Serbian extremist shot Archduke Ferdinand and his wife in Sarajevo. On the 31st of July, the Austro-Hungarian Empire declares war on the Serbian government and starts to mobilise. On the 1st of August, Russia starts to mobilise to protect its ally Serbia. Through its alliance with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Germany prepares to execute the Schlieffen Plan by invading France, by passing through neutral Belgium. On the 1st of August, Germany declares war on Russia. On the 3rd of August, Germany declares war on France. Germany hoped Britain would stay out of the conflict, but Britain was tied by the Treaty of London to protect Belgium. So, on the 4th of August, Britain declares war on Germany. On the 6th of August, the Austro-Hungarian Empire declares war on Russia. On the 7th of August, the first British troops land in France. The same day, France invades Alsace-Lorraine and loses 27,000 men in one day. From the assassination, it took less than eight weeks for the entire world to be at war. The guards were in the first wave of troops to go across the Channel, with six battalions being immediately mobilised to join the British Expeditionary Force and were fully engaged for the next four years, sustaining significant losses in the process. They took part in the retreat from Mons, halting only to beat off the pursuing Germans at Landressy and Villa Cotterets. Further battalions were sent to France to take part in the First Battle of Ypres, where the pre-war Regular Army was almost annihilated in its efforts to prevent Germans from reaching the channel ports. In 1915, Lord Kitchener ordered that all the Guards' battalions should be combined to form the Guards' division. Their first battle was in September 1915 at Luz when they captured the famous Hill 70 under intense enemy fire. In total, during the Great War, the Guards lost 14,653 men and a further 28,398 men were seriously wounded. Let's look at some of the artefacts we have on display in the collection. We have a very interesting model on display which depicts the moment King George V invested Lance Sergeant Oliver Brooks with a Victoria Cross. Brooks had won the award while serving with the 3rd Battalion Coastring Guards near Loos. His citation reads as follows. For most conspicuous bravery near Loos on the 8th of October 1915. A strong party of the enemy, having captured 200 yards of our trench, Lance Sergeant Brooks, on his own initiative, led a party of bombers in a most determined manner and succeeded in regaining possession of the lost ground. This signal bravery, displayed by this non-commissioned officer in the midst of a hail of German bombs, was of the very first order, and the complete success attained in a very dangerous undertaking was entirely due to his absolute fearlessness, presence of mind and promptitude. King George happened to be in France at the time, but had fallen from his horse and injured himself. He was determined to make the presentation in person, so Brooks was taken to the hospital train on which the king was recovering. The train was in a siding at Airey in France. So on the 1st of November 1915, Brooks was asked to kneel at the king's bedside so the king could pin the Victoria Cross on him. After the war, Brooks became a doorman at the Dorchester Hotel on Park Lane. And then later at the White Hart Hotel in Windsor. Brooks died in 1987 at his home in Windsor at the grand old age of 98. The model on display shows the railway carriage with a cutaway revealing the inside of the carriage with Brooks kneeling by the king. The model even shows the sentry outside the carriage protecting the sovereign. Next to the train carriage we have a wonderful brass lantern measuring about eight inches by eight inches by about four inches deep It's actually a German lantern that was liberated by the Scots Guards who had a glass plate made in the divisional blue-red-blue format and then the lettering showing Battalion Headquarters with the Scots Guards badge in the centre and with the Roman numerals for the number 2 depicting the 2nd Battalion. The lantern had a candle inside which illuminated the glass plate and it was hung in the trenches to show the location of the Battalion Headquarters. Beautifully crafted but with a very practical use too. On the back wall of this gallery, we have a small photograph in an oval silver frame. The photo is of Captain Geoffrey Gunnis, Grenadier Guards. Captain Gunnis won the Military Cross. Educated at Eton between 1909 and 1913, and then at Eton Officer Training Corps at Sandhurst, Geoffrey Gunnis was a contemporary of Harold Macmillan. On completion of his training, he joined the Grenadier Guards as a lieutenant, a regiment in which family members had previously served. Being a serving soldier, his regiment was deployed to the Western Front, somewhat surprisingly late in the war, on the 26th of July, 1915. He joined the army at the age of 18. Indeed, the Northern Times reported of his being awarded the Military Cross, a medal awarded to officers for distinguished service in battle, for conspicuous courage during the Battle of Luz to the northwest of Lens in France, which was the first major British offensive of the war. His battalion had been charged with taking the enemy Big Willy Trench when, on the 8th of October, he was ordered to block a communication trench with his platoon and to seize the opportunity of making a bombing counterattack. When bombs came up, he led his men with great courage and attacked the enemy in flank and in rear, driving them out into open ground and recaptured the remainder of the lost trench, inflicting severe casualties on the enemy. Only 2,885 military crosses were awarded during the Great War. Gunnis was promoted to temporary captain on the 13th of November, becoming second in command of a sub-unit of up to 120 soldiers. Having continued sea action in the intervening period to September 1916, the 3rd Battalion Grenadier Guards, with many others, underwent training at Morlancourt in preparation for an attack on enemy lines near Ganshi at the Somme. On the fifteenth of that month, zero hour for the attack was six twenty a m The men had taken position at three a m and according to the battalion war diary, the men slept therefore from three to five forty five a m They were given sandwiches and an issue of rum. A creeping barrage signified the start of the action, and the Germans countered with their own artillery. The British troops advanced and were immediately cut down by enemy machine guns. Many officers and men fell as they left their positions. Tanks were supposed to be in support, but they failed to materialise. Their left flank was in the air, and their right flank was completely exposed. At the end of the day, after suffering great casualties, the battalion held a small frontage on the right of its first objective. The enemy persisted in counterattacking during the night, but these were all repulsed. It is not stated when, but sometime during the day's action, Captain Gunness received a bullet in his chest, which penetrated his lungs. He was withdrawn from the battlefield. He was evacuated, eventually to the hospital at Rouen, where he died of his wounds on the 13th of October. He was just 19 years of age. We have on display a German helmet, two bayonets and a sandbag taken as souvenir by a Grenadier officer. I find it strange that in war, some things are deemed to be acceptable as weapons, and some are not. One of the German bayonets had a toothed sawback to it, which allowed the owner to cut wood. However, it was considered to be barbaric in its anti-personnel role, and was subsequently banned by the Geneva Convention. At the outbreak of the war, a German man called Karl-Hans Lodi was working in London. He happened to be a senior lieutenant in the Imperial German Navy, so Lodi decided to stay in London to spy on British naval movements. He assumed the name Charles Ingalls and moved freely around Britain until he was captured. His intelligence passed back to the German High Command resulted in the sinking of HMS Pathfinder. He was sentenced to death by firing squad and taken to the Tower of London. The regiment stationed in the tower was the Grenadier Guards, and it was they who had to find the firing party. We have in the collection a letter from Lodi to the commanding officer of the Grenadiers, and it reads, Sir, I feel it is my duty as a German officer to express my sincere thanks and appreciation to the guards and sentries who have been my guardians. Although they never neglected their duty, they have always shown the utmost courtesy and consideration towards me. If it is within the frame of regulation, I wish this may be made known to them. I am, sir, with profound respect, Karl-Hans Lodi, Senior Lieutenant, Imperial German Naval Reserve. On the way to the miniature firing range inside the Tower of London for the execution, the procession was led by the Padre, who was greatly affected by having to read the burial service lines to a living man. Inadvertently, the Padre took a wrong turn, and it was Lodi who reached forward and gently redirected him. Before securing him to the chair, the Provost Marshal, Colonel the Lord Athlumley, asked Lodi if he had any last request. Lodi replied, Yes, I do. I don't suppose you would shake hands with a German spy. The Colonel replied, No, I would not, but I'm proud to shake the hands of a very brave man. There were eight in the firing detail, and their rifles were all preloaded by the Provost Marshal. Five rifles had live rounds, and three contained blanks. This was to salve the conscience of those firing that perhaps they had the blank round. The weapons were also unloaded by the Provost Marshal. We have a small white patch which was pinned over Lodi's heart as a target, which clearly shows five hits. Each member of the detail was given a shilling by the Provost Marshal in an act that goes back to when kings and statesmen were beheaded. They would tip the executioner to do a good job in one blow. We have on display the two spent rounds and the shilling given to Private Leeson of the Grenadiers. Some of you may recall that Robin Lee Pemberton was governor of the Bank of England between 1983 and 1993. He went on to become Baron Kingsdown. Knight of the Garter and Privy Councillor. Well, his father was Lieutenant Douglas Lee Pemberton, a Grenadier officer serving with the Royal Flying Corps. We have a very good print of the aerial action in the Great War in which he shot down two of the five German aircraft pursuing him. He then hit two other German aircraft before crashing behind enemy lines. Both he and his observer escaped. Not bad for a foot soldier. His son, also a Grenadier, won the Sword of Honour at Sandhurst and served with the regiment in Palestine before going into banking with Nat West and thence to the Bank of England. One of the most chilling things we have on display is the gas hood. The phenate hexamine British gas hood is indeed a terrifying thing. Made of off-white canvas, it had two large glass eye holes and a rubber exhaust valve where the mouth is located. The way it worked was you pulled the hood over your head and tucked the lower part of the hood into the neck of your battle dress jacket, which in truth formed a very poor seal. You then breathed in through the cloth. The canvas was impregnated with chemicals ostensibly to neutralise the chlorine gas. You breathed out through the exhaust valve. It is surprising this hood has survived as the chemicals used on the cloth caused them to rot quite quickly especially around the metal fixings for the eyeglass. My predecessor, David Horne, used to relate the story that he was taking a group of elderly guests on a private guided tour of the collection. As the group rounded the corner and saw the Great War Gallery with the gas hood, one old man literally dropped to the floor, clasping his hand to his mouth. It transpired his older brother had been in the French resistance and had seen the Germans unloading the gas shells. He reported what he had seen to the British commanders in that sector, who dismissed his reports as ridiculous. They said there was no way the Germans would use such an inhumane and volatile weapon. Why? A change of wind direction would make the gas equally as dangerous to their own troops. The Germans did use the shells the next day, and his brother died in the first barrage. The gentleman recovered and apologised for the scene. It had just taken him by surprise and the sudden confrontation with the Hood had proved too much for him. We are all used to seeing images of the battlefield cemeteries in France, Belgium and other locations around the world, beautifully laid out in ordered lines and painstakingly maintained by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, who do such a splendid job honouring the British and Commonwealth fallen. But we are less used to seeing how the bodies were roughly interred at the time when they died, in battle, there is little time for neatly dug graves, fine coffins and a meaningful church service. It was usually a roughly dug pit, a plain wooden box, but more often with no coffin and no shroud, just a simple wooden cross to mark the last resting place of a warrior gone to his grave. It was made by the pioneers in the Scots Guards, and it was taken from the cemetery at Hermies Canal du Nord in 1918, as the War Graves Commission were exhuming bodies to be reinterred more formally in a nearby war grave. We have another wooden cross on display in the Afghanistan Gallery, which was used to mark the grave of a guardsman until the body could be recovered and repatriated. I find it compelling that with a century in between these two conflicts, it still comes down to a simple wooden cross, roughly nailed together in haste to mark a warrior's long, cold home. In the centre of the Great War display, We have a photograph of a very young 2nd Lieutenant, His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, later to become King Edward VIII. It was taken in France and shows him as a subaltern in the Grenadier Guards, with his foot resting on a bench. He looks about 12 years old. He was allowed to go to France, but not allowed to fight in the front line. As heir to the throne, it could not be risked. We also have the short Lee-Enfield which he carried whilst serving in France, complete with the inscribed brass plate on the butt which records its provenance. Next to them we have a report signed by the Prince of Wales when he was the guard commander of the Buckingham Palace detachment of the King's Guard. It must have seemed very odd to know you were actually guarding your own house whilst on duty. Still, it meant it was quite a short commute to go to work in the morning. It's not widely known that His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales was awarded a military cross in 1916 in recognition of his many morale-boosting visits to the front line. However, he felt he never deserved the medal. A letter to his father's aide-de-camp, Captain Brian Godfrey Fawcett, in June of the same year, the Prince wrote, My best thanks to you and Mrs F for your kind congratulations. No, no, I can't say I feel I've earned the military cross at all, but that's nothing to do with me. The award has always been controversial, as the medal is intended for acts of exemplary gallantry during active operations against the enemy, something the prince did not fulfil. In later life, King Edward was reluctant to wear the medal. After 11 months on the throne, Edward abdicated as king in 1936 in order to marry his beloved Wallace Simpson a twice-divorced American. On the other hand, the Queen's father, George VI, was on the battleship HMS Collingwood and wrote to Captain Fawcett's wife, I'm quite all right and feel very different now that I have actually seen a German ship filled with Germans and have seen it fired on with our guns. It was a great experience to have gone through and one not easily forgotten. How and why we were not hit or damaged beats me as we were being fired on for a good part of the time. The ship ahead of us was hit, but did not do any material damage. We had torpedoes fired at us, which we got out of the way of, luckily. It seems to have resulted in a victory for us. The Germans must have suffered very severely, as our ships were hitting very nearly all the time. Regimental traditions are mysterious things, and none more so than the tradition among grenadier officers that they carry a walking stick, or ash plant as they were called. We have on display the stick carried by His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales and we have a photograph of him with it tucked under his left forearm during one of his visits to the front line. There are reports of guards' officers striding across no man's land armed with a walking stick, a whistle and a revolver looking utterly invincible. I'm not sure I would have had the bravado to do the same. We now come to an object which formed the catalyst which got me involved with the museum's board of trustees. As many of you will be aware, I have not always been here at the museum. I did 30 years in investment banking before assuming this role. During that time, I had a phone call from my chum David Horn, the curator of the Guards Museum, who also happened to be my old regimental sergeant major from the Honourable Artillery Company. He told me the museum had been offered a World War I Victoria Cross medal group won by Corporal Wilfrid Dolby Fuller, Grenadier Guards. He won the VC for conspicuous bravery at a place called Neuve-Chapelle in France on the 12th of March 1915. His citation reads, Seeing a party of the enemy endeavouring to escape along a communication trench, he ran towards them and killed the leading man with a bomb. The remainder, nearly 50 men, finding no means of escaping his bombs, surrendered to him. Lance Corporal Fuller was quite alone at the time. Picture the scene. Fuller has thrown his bomb and rushed forward, screaming at the top of his voice. The Germans have thrown down their weapons, put their hands up in surrender, only to find this guy is on his own. I'm not sure what the German for bugger is, but I bet a few of them uttered something similar at the time. So this wonderful VC medal group was being offered to the museum for £15,000 a tenth of its real value. At the time, I was working for an old British merchant bank called Morgan Grenfell, and David rang me there asking if the bank would be willing to sponsor the purchase of the VC medal group. The museum was out of funds at the time, not an unusual set of circumstances for a small regimental museum, and one, I have to say, that continues to this day. I said I had no idea if the bank would do such a thing, but that I would check with my boss At the time, I was working for a wonderful Irishman called Patrick McAfee, who featured in a tale in one of the earlier episodes. I explained to Patrick about the VC medal group and the museum's dire financial straits and asked if he thought that Morgan Grenfell would buy the Victoria Cross medal group on behalf of the museum. Patrick replied, My dear boy, what you don't know is that our bank has just been purchased by Deutsche Bank and I suspect the board in Frankfurt might have an issue with us buying that medal group, as I'm pretty sure he won it killing their grandfathers, but set up a meeting anyway. So we met David for lunch in a restaurant on the Strand, and Patrick had David tell him the story again. David did so. Then Patrick drew out his personal checkbook, wrote a cheque for £15,000, signed it, tore it out and slid it across the table to David poor David's eyes were like saucers, and his mouth kept opening and closing, but no sound was coming out. Not often that a guardsman is entirely lost for words. It was through Patrick's outstanding generosity that we have the medal group on display in the museum to this day. If you're listening, Patrick, good man yourself. Probably my favourite photograph in the collection is of a group of 12 regimental sergeant majors standing together. These are the RSMs of all the guards' battalions at the end of the Great War. If you look at their faces, all but one of them has grown a moustache to make himself look older. Before the war, the RSM would have been 55 or 60 years of age. In the photo, there's not a man older than 29. All the old men had gone. Every man in the photo was responsible for a thousand conscripted men in his battalion. He was expected to be mother and father to a thousand conscripted men, so they grew a moustache to give themselves a bit more gravitas. The man in the centre of the photo is one officer Frank Speller, RSM of the Guards Machine Gun Regiment, a unit formed purely for the Great War and disbanded immediately afterwards. The Machine Gun Guards had the most wonderful cap badge. Like a number of the Guards Regiments, it was a star, a five-pointed star in this case. The points of the star were formed by 303 rounds, bullets in other words. And in between each round was a miniature badge of one of the five regiments of foot guards from which they were drawn to form the regiment. We have an officer's cap star on display in the museum and it is a thing of beauty. We also have a bugle from the machine gun guards as they had their own corps of drums. They were also authorised to form their own regimental band, but that never happened as they were disbanded before it could be arranged. We have a patch of French tricolor ribbon on display. On the 15th of August 1914, the 2nd Battalion Grenadier Guards arrived in France at Arras. There was a welcoming committee which comprised the town mayor and the other council seniors who gave the regiment a fine welcome. The commanding officer, Lieutenant-Colonel Nal Corey, DSO, was decorated with a garland of flowers which was held together by a long tricolor ribbon. The ribbon was later cut into short lengths and presented to the officers of the battalion. The piece we have on display was given to the museum by Brigadier the Lord Roundway, CMG DSO MVO, who served with the battalion at that time. One of the Irish Guards' Victoria Crosses was won by Lance Sergeant John Moyney. He commanded an advance guard that held post for five days, during which time they had neither food nor water. They were forced to fight their way out with bombs and a Lewis machine gun. Moyney led his men in a charge through the enemy lines. On reaching a river, he and Private Thomas Woodcock gave covering fire to allow the rest of the party to cross before they were able to return to safety themselves. Woodcock actually waited, still firing, until the Germans were just yards from his position before he crossed the river. Whilst crossing, he heard cries from a wounded Irish guardsman, so he waded back across, picked up the wounded man under heavy fire, and not only carried him across the river, but also across open ground in broad daylight amidst heavy machine gun fire. Both men were awarded the Victoria Cross for conspicuous gallantry. Woodcock returned to his hometown, that well-known Irish enclave of Wigan in Lancashire, where he was fated quite rightly as a hero. As a Victoria Cross holder, he was not required to return to France, but he did and was killed a few weeks later. We have on display the wire cutters used on that expedition across no man's land to cut the barbed wire. The cutters are mounted on a wooden plaque made of Irish bog yew, which is nearly 5,000 years old. One exhibit which causes frequent comment from members of the public is the officer's service dress uniform, which we have on display. They come to the reception desk and say, I see you have a World War One officer's uniform on show. Are you aware the cap is back to front? The answer is, thank you. Yes, we are. The reason for it is as follows. In the Great War, Guards officers' service dress caps were unlike the rest of the British army, insofar as they all had gold embroidery on the peak. As they went into the front line, the German snipers would look for the gold embroidery and would take out all the officers. They would not allow their officers to go into battle bareheaded, but they did authorise them to wear their caps back to front. So, to all the rap stars of today who like to go around with their baseball caps turned back to front, Could I just say, the Guards were doing that years ago. It's also worth noting, on this uniform, the officer's rank is shown on their shoulders rather than on the cuff, as it was in the rest of the British Army at that time. In fact, they were convinced they had found the body of Lieutenant John Kipling, as they plotted how far they thought he could reasonably have crawled before dying, and this body met all of those parameters. My predecessor pointed out it couldn't possibly have been young Kipling, as the body was dressed in a uniform, albeit rotten and disintegrating, which had the rank on the sleeve, which ruled out the possibility of it being a Guards officer. Powerful stuff this week, and redolent of all the things which have made the Guards reputation as fearless fighters, as well as superb drill mechanics. The man who wrote the Sherlock Holmes books also wrote a poem about the guards in the Great War. The voice of the poem is not that of a guardsman, but of a soldier who witnessed the guards' division going into action in the push at Chalkpit Woods, where John Kipling was lost. It's a powerful poem, which was one of my father's favourites, so please indulge me if I say it for you now. It is entitled, The Guards Came Through. Men of the 21st, up by the chalk pit wood. Weak with our wounds and our thirst. Wanting our sleep and our food. After a day and a night, God shall we ever forget. Beaten and broken the fight, but sticking it, sticking it yet. Trying to hold the line, fainting and spent and done. Always the thud and the whine. Always the yell of the hun. Northumberland, Lancaster, York, Durham and Somerset. Fighting alone, worn to the bone, but sticking it, sticking it yet. Never a message of hope, never a word of cheer. Fronting hill seventies, shell-swept slope, the dull, dead plain in our rear. Always the whine of the shell, always the roar of its burst, always the torture of hell. As waiting and wincing, we cursed our luck and the guns and the Boche. When our corporal shouted, "Stand to!" And I heard someone cry, clear the front for the guards. And the guards came through. Our throats were parched and hot, but Lord, if you'd heard the cheer. Irish and Welsh and Scot, Coalstream and Grenadier. Two brigades, if you please, dressing as straight as a hem. We were down on our knees, praying for us and for them. Lord, I could speak for a week, but how could you understand? How should your weeks be wet? Such feelings don't come to you. But when can me or my mates forget when the guards came through? Five yards left extend! It passed from rank to rank, line after line with never a bend, a touch of the London swank. A trifle of swank and dash, cool as a home parade, twinkle and glitter and flash, flinching never a shade. With the shrapnel right in their face, doing their Hyde Park stunt, keeping their swing at an easy pace, arms at the trail, ice front. Man, it was great to see, man, it was fine to do. It's a cot and a hospital ward for me, but I'll tell them in blightly, wherever I be, how the Guards came through. The Guards Memorial, also known as the Guards Division War Memorial, is located on the west side of Horse Guards Road. It commemorates the war dead from the Guards Division and related units during the First World War and the Household Division in the Second World War and other conflicts since 1918. The Cenotaph Memorial was designed by H. Charlton Bradshaw. It includes a broad, squat, white Portland stone obelisk, 38 feet high, standing on a white stone base with 3 steps. On a raised platform on the east side of the memorial, facing Horse Guards Parade, are five large bronze sculpted figures by Gilbert Ledward, one representing each of the foot guards' regiments, standing easy with their rifles, above stone carvings showing the badge of each regiment. The statues were modelled on serving guardsmen. Sergeant R. Bradshaw, Military Medal of the Grenadier Guards, Lance Corporal J.S. Richardson of the Colstream Guards, Guardsman J. MacDonald of the Scots Guards, Guardsman Simon McCarthy of the Irish Guards, and Guardsman A. Cumley of the Welsh Guards. The three other sides each bear a bronze panel, one to either side depicting military equipment and one to the rear depicting artillery in action. The statues and panels were cast by William Morris Art Bronze Foundry using bronze taken from German guns melted down after the First War. Above the five statues, the cenotaph also bears an inscription written by Rudyard Kipling. It goes... To the glory of God and in the memory of the officers, warrant officers, non-commissioned officers and guardsmen of His Majesty's regiments of foot guards who gave their lives for their king and country during the Great War 1914-1918, to 1918. and of the officers, warrant officers, non-commissioned officers and men of the Household Cavalry, Royal Regiment of Artillery, Corps of Royal Engineers, Royal Army Service Corps, Royal Medical Corps, another unit who, while serving the Guards Division in France and Belgium, fell with them in the fight for the world's freedom. Above the main inscription is an incised cross between bands of horizontal incised lines and lower down a second inscription. This monument was erected by their friends and comrades. Further inscriptions on the sides of the Cenotaph record the units involved and to the west side, below another cross, records their battle honours. The monument was built by the Birmingham Guild at a cost of around £22,000, with the lettering cut by Ernest Gillick. It was unveiled by Field Marshal, Prince Arthur, Duke of Connaught and Strathairn, at a ceremony on the 16th of October 1926, accompanied by the 100-year-old veteran of the Crimean War, General Sir George Higginson, that we heard about in previous episodes with a dedication by Reverend H.J. Fleming, who became Senior Chaplain of the Guards Division when it was formed in 1915, and a benediction by the Chaplain General to the forces, the Reverend Alfred Jarvis. There was then a march past by 15,000 serving and former Guardsmen. The memorial suffered bomb damage in the Second World War, and some of it was left unrepaired, as, as they said, honourable scars. After World War II, an inscription was added below the statues to commemorate those who died between 1939 and 1945. This memorial also commemorates all members of the Household Division who died in the Second World War and in the service of their country since 1918. The memorial received Grade II listing in 1970 and was promoted to Grade I listing in October 2014. This is where the five regiments lay their wreaths on what they call Regimental Black Sunday, the day when they remember their fallen. This wreath laying is frequently attended by their royal colonel. Well, that's about it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about the guards in the Great War. Clearly in a short podcast we can only scratch the surface of such a huge topic, but I sincerely hope you get a feel for the horrors they must have faced, and a hint of the bravery shown by those who answered the call to arms. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to support the work we are doing during the pandemic lockdown, then do please make a donation through the Support Us button on the landing page of our website, which is www.theguardsmuseum.com. Do please go back and leave us a review, as that helps us a lot, and do please subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss any episodes. I have been Andrew Wallace. This has been episode 12 of Bearskins, Bayonets and Bravery. Notes from the Gars Museum. So until next time, goodbye and God bless. Now, turn to your right and salute. Dismiss. Up. Down. And get away.